From MPB Think Radio, this is Creature Comforts. It's the show all about your animals and the animals around you. Kevin Farrell here with Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science, and Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson. Today, we welcome our favorite paleontologist, George Phillips, from the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science to the program. This Saturday is the Fossil Roadshow. We'll talk to him about that. Also this hour, we reflect on 40 years of paleontology at the Museum of Natural Science. If you found something interesting digging around in your backyard, we want to hear about it. Join the conversation this morning with a phone call. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one 672 7464 Or you can send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. You're listening to Creature Comforts from MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. It's the show all about your animals and the animals around you. Kevin Farrell here with Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science, and Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson. Today we welcome our favorite paleontologist, George Phillips, from the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science to the show. This Saturday is the Fossil Road Show, so we'll talk about that. Also this hour, we'll reflect on 40 years of paleontology at the Museum of Natural Science. And if you found something interesting while digging around in your backyard, call in. We want to hear about it. To join the conversation, call one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464 or you can email the show animals at mpbonline.org. We do like to remind you that if you miss Creature Comforts on Thursday, it repeats every Saturday morning at 6. So good morning. Hope that everyone's doing well this morning. Good morning, morning, Kevin. So, Libby, we were chatting uh, briefly before the show started. Uh, The Fanny Cook Tour marches on. Do you have any updates uh, that you could give us? Oh, gosh, yeah. Let's see. We're talking to the League of Women Voters, I think, next Saturday. We'll be in Vicksburg at the Lorelei Bookstore on the 15th, March the 15th, and uh, I think that's at 5 o'clock in the evening, 5 or 5.30, which should be fun, and uh, Fanny Cook's got a Facebook page, so you can go like <laughs> Fanny Cook, and then you can get the get announcements about when she's going to be where, but it's working out pretty good. And again, I always like to remind folks, if they're not aware of who Fanny Cook is, it's, I mean, she's such an important figure that uh, we always like to give the thumbnail sketch. Okay, Fanny Cook, uh, where to begin? She was born in 1889, so long time ago, about 130 years ago, and uh, she traveled around the, the country, around the world a little bit even, and ended up in Washington, D.C., going to George Washington University and doing some stuff at the Smithsonian and realized Mississippi didn't have any conservation laws or game laws or a museum, kind of any of the things she was seeing in other places in the country. And so she came home and did all those things. She mm-hmm. she um, uh, started a grassroots effort that culminated in the Game and Fish Commission and wrote game laws and started kind of getting people on board to take care of what we've got so that we still have it. And at that time, uh, a lot of game animals populations were depleted there were there weren't every county in the state didn't even have deer as you 
which seems mm-hmm. like an odd thing now, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. yeah. But uh, so they, they worked real hard to um, restore populations of animals. So anyone that appreciates uh, Mississippi's natural resources, so certainly a nod uh, to folks like Fanny Cook who led the way and, and you know, uh, were, were groundbreakers and allowed us to be able to enjoy uh, what we can when we go outside in Mississippi. Uh, so today we're going to be talking to George Phillips uh, about the Fossil Road Show and uh, about uh, paleontology. Dr. Major's here ready to take some pet questions. We always like to hear your brushes with wildlife, what you see when you've been out and about in Mississippi. So give us a call. The phone number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven six seven two. 7464. If you're not near a phone, you can always join the conversation from uh, email, animals at mpbonline.org. So, Dr. Major, yesterday on our Southern Remedy, our medical call-in show, uh, the, the topic was allergies. And I know humans suffer a lot uh, this time of year uh, with allergies. What about our pets? Do dogs and cats tend to get allergies, anything similar to what we humans do? Absolutely, and uh, maybe manifested in a little bit different uh, aspect than than ours, but still, I think most in the humans, a lot of the allergies are upper respiratory or at least sinus type things, and dogs can have dogs and cats can have that too. A lot of the allergies are manifested in skin issues, uh, dermatitis uh, for one reason or another, scratching. And, of course, animals tend to, if they've got something that itches, they're going to mutilate it if you're not careful. And, <laughs> I would. Uh, yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's a hard thing. Some people, some people can't resist their urge to scratch. But the dogs are the same thing. If they get an issue, they're going to be scratching. They're going to be chewing. Uh, cats are the same way. And uh, there are also food allergies that uh, are very prominent, uh, with, uh, especially with dogs, but also with cats. So, Yes, allergies are an issue uh, with our animals. Uh, you know, I know whenever I get poison ivy, it's difficult for me to stop scratching, even though we know we're not supposed to. So I understand the, the thing that our pets are going through. So also, though, again, you know, trying to be vigilant, um, if you see your pet more, more, you know, scratching a little bit more, chewing a little right. bit more, that obviously might be something that you want to follow up on with your vet. Sure. And, of course, one of the most common things that we see would be external parasites, fleas and ticks. As well, so uh, this, you know, did we have a severe winter? Not severe enough to cut back on fleas uh, and ticks. So we will be seeing. Uh, well, we already are seeing fleas, especially right now. So uh, something to be aware of. And this causes a lot of irritation. It's something you have to rule out if you suspect an allergy. If the animal has fleas, you need to take care of that first, and then uh, go further. Uh, that reminds me, I need to give my cat another dose of the uh, flea medicine. I use the, the little liquid that you kind of squirt on the back of his neck right. there, and it's amazing to me, and I'm sure the Dutch is my pet, but he knows, I don't know how he knows, but he <laughs> knows, and he's not, all of a sudden he uses all of his catly abilities to avoid yeah. uh, being roped in. And Listen, they know how to hide. They know, they know when you're thinking about doing that, too. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And with a cat, uh, I'll mention this, you always need to uh, apply these uh liquids that you use for flea control uh, very close to the base of the skull because cat will turn around and lick literally lick the hair off a lot of times if you get it out out of place so yep. uh, that's important but most of the time a lot of the times I'll say it's a two-person job uh, <laughs> to put medication on a cat 
Yeah, and I'll. Uh, uh, it, it, I noticed too that it's you know it's a liquid thing. You have to squirt it out there, and I, I get pretty one good squirt uh, before he takes off. So right. I've learned to really try to get all that I can on there. Right. Yeah. He uh, once he gets trapped in there, he's not real happy. But then when he feels that, you know, and again, cats can jerk their bodies so quickly well, sometimes a, with a towel helps a lot. Yes. Uh, make a make a. Uh, Taco out of the cat. <laughs> yeah. for, yeah. for, or a burrito. A burrito, yeah, yeah. I guess a burrito would be better said. Thank you. Yes, and he, he looks so cute when he's wrapped up in a towel like that. <laughs> yeah, he's not happy. Yeah, they love that, don't they? <laughs> George Phillips is our guest on the program this morning. George, always good to have you on Creature Comforts. Thank you, and for the glowing endorsement. Favorite? Am I really the only paleontologist? You know? <laughs> well, no. <laughs> You're our favorite, even if you are the only one. <laughs> you guys have great fossil-related programming. Now. <laughs> so, uh, big event every year, the Fossil Road Show, coming up this Saturday. Yeah, my um, life is consumed by it right now. The 15th annual. Have you been involved from the beginning? Um, at the very first one, I was... Uh, I wasn't as active as I am today or, or became the second year. So I've um, been a co-host of the show through various people. And now my wife, who is the event planner at the museum, Nicole Smith. Um, but the very first show, which I think was 2003, uh, I was kind of a bystander. Uh, but I did help identify fossils. And that was the year they laid out uh, Basil, the Basilosaurus, uh, for the first time before it was mounted. They laid all the bones out, and that was quite an impressive oh, that photo. that was a great one. That mm. was, that I still was have that so photo good. hanging in the lab. <laughs> of course, everybody can see the reconstruction mm-hmm. hanging near the balcony today. Mm-hmm. You know, MPB was a, was a uh, partner in those first ones, mm. and was it the third one that we televised, actually? The, uh, a, the 2008. Two, okay. Then it was Eight. nominated for an Emmy in 2009. Yeah. Oh, wow. Right. Yeah. So how how did the whole thing get started? Um, Its origins lies with um, our former head of education, Martha Cooper, and uh, our uh, senior docent, still our senior docent after all these years, uh, John Davis, who still comes in on Fridays and works with the insect collection, not so much with the fossils anymore. Um, But yeah, it was kind of John's idea, and and, uh, Martha was the first to implement it. And then a couple of years later, uh, Rebecca Jones uh, took over it. And so I worked with Rebecca. And uh, I think maybe our very highest years of attendance were the last couple of years with Rebecca. And we've been doing new things to try to attract more people today. And uh, this year, we've got a great guest speaker. Um, it's Dr. Mark Puckett with the University of Southern Mississippi. And he's going to talk about the world of tiny fossils. Okay. Uh, and by the way, John Davis uh, still going strong. He's now a reading service volunteer, so That's he comes right. over and uh, reads books and uh, other things for print impaired folks. For Can't their, keep a good man down. Service. I think he's here today. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, and he's man. That that guy's just he's like the Energizer Bunny. I think mm-hmm. he just goes on. And on. <laughs> hey, let's uh, take a minute and uh, get a phone call. We'll talk to Frank in Jackson. Good morning, Frank. Good morning to the pet and dinosaur people. <laughs> <laughs> My question is. Have human remains, skeletons, skulls, fingertips, or whatever, ever been found in the stomachs of dinosaurs, or have we ever found human remains in the same locations as dinosaurs? Uh, no, and in fact, emphatically, no. We've we've never 
found any kind of human remains in direct or intimate association with dinosaurs or even in indirect association with dinosaurs. Um, uh, there is uh, an, an idea uh, among some people, and it's, it's not um, uh, – it, it's mostly common knowledge to most people that dinosaurs and humans did not live together. We don't have any evidence of that. Um, but uh, some people but still – It's cartoons. It happens all the time, right, George. Right, that, yeah. that influences us all. What we, what we see when we're five years old kind of sticks with us. There's definitely a, a popular mythos about humans and dinosaurs once existing. But they've never been – their remains have never been found together. Artifacts have never been found together. That's what I mean by indirect association of the two. Um, but, yeah, to this day, we have found human remains in Mississippi that date to the Ice Age, though. Okay. So people were here with mastodons mm-hmm. and, and saber-toothed oh, good point. tigers. Yeah, those are the kinds yes. of creatures they were yeah. living with. Mm-hmm. Do we call them uh, Native Americans? I suppose mm-hmm. we should. They are, huh? Yeah. So it's and pretty course, cool that somebody was here with the saber-toothed tigers. So that would have oh, been yeah. around 10,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. Prior 10, to 10,000, 10 or 11,000 yeah. years ago. Mm-hmm. Giant yeah. sloths. Mm-hmm. Giant ground sloths. We do have evidence of those things interacting with humans, but not dinosaurs, unless you include avian dinosaurs, and there's lots of evidence <laughs> for that. All right. Frank, uh, thanks for your call. Let's take a quick break. When we get back, we'll continue visiting with our guest on Creature Comforts today, George Phillips from the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Dr. Major is here as well if you have a pet question. To join in today, call us at 1-877-MPB-RING. It's 1-877-672-7464. We'll be back with more after this. MPB has always been a big part of my life. I grew up listening to it, and now I can give back and be a part of the mission by volunteering. And that's my MPB story. Share your story using hashtag MyMPBStory. Welcome back. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science, and Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson. We're visiting today with paleontologist George Phillips from the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. This hour, we're going to be talking about the Fossil Roadshow that's coming up this Saturday at the museum, also reflecting on 40 years of paleontology at the Museum of Natural Science. Also, Dr. Major here, ready to take some pet questions. We've got some open phone lines if you'd like to join in today. Give us a call at one eight seven seven MPB ring. It's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. If you're not near a phone but still want to contribute, you can email the show animals at mpbonline dot org. All right. Uh, so George, um, tell us a little bit about this year's fossil roadshow. Uh, what what can folks look forward to? Well, this year, our 15th year, um, we have some newcomers to the Fossil Roadshow. We're getting more institutional support than we ever have. We've got University of Southern Mississippi showing for the second time this year, or uh, let's put it this way, they are there to provide support with respect to identification and promote their institution. And are, um, did, are they bringing fossils for us to they see? They always have knickknacks on the display. Micro. On the, yeah, right. Yeah. Well, yes, there will be a slideshow presented by one of the USM professors on the tiny fossils uh, that can be found in Mississippi and Alabama in particular. Um, and by tiny, I mean microscopic, possibly even nanoscopic, smaller than micro. But um, yeah, I want to see those. Oh, yeah. It's going to be a good show. Uh, USM will be there. University of Mississippi will be there. They're bringing a new paleontologist, also a micropaleontologist, I understand. 
Um, we'll have University uh, Mississippi State University back again. They've been with us for at least 10 years strong. Um, let's see. Oh, we have, uh, let's don't forget, Jefferson College, Robin Person, the director down there. She'll be back for the fifth or sixth year. We have a lot of these institutional um, programs that are very much interested in uh, educating the public about Mississippi paleontology or paleontology in, in the Deep South, but also uh, they're on hand to help people identify fossils and see what people are bringing in, see what's being found by um, you know just your average Joe out there in the field or in a creek bed or at a road cut or, or something like that. That's really, to me, the most fun part of this event is that Everybody brings the shoebox or the mm-hmm. dress box <laughs> or the wheelbarrow with them, what they found. And, you know, it, one of the neatest things is usually what people think is their treasure ends up not being the treasure. But that thing that they just happen to bring <laughs> yeah. anyway, everybody <laughs> takes on over, you know. So kids come with something that's been rattling around in a Band-Aid box for, for months. And Beauty then George the tells them what it is. And then he wraps it in bubble wrap in a, in a beautiful box. You know, take this home and take care of it, kid. And it's that's the most fun part. So just dig that stuff out and take a chance, even if you think that it might not be anything when you bring it. And, of course, you get to look over everybody else's shoulder and see oh, yeah. what they find. There's a lot of uh, shoulder peering. <laughs> and when it's something really cool, everybody rushes over to that one table, and then George or somebody will do a little impromptu talk about what this new thing is. We're always uh, scared of the guy who brings a bucket full of things up to the table. <laughs> that usually takes a while. So we advise only maybe a half a dozen things or so. We've got a caller on the line, so let's say good morning to our friend Sue in Beaumont. Good morning, Sue. Hi. I, I was just wanting to comment on, a, I think it was Frank was, you know, mentioning about humans and dinosaurs together. It reminded me of my favorite uh, Gary Larson cartoon where this caveman is standing in the door of his cave holding a club, and his wife's in the background with a fire ready for him to bring some something home to eat. And he's looking out over this plane with his little club, and there's these saber-toothed tigers and mastodons and cave bears and all these big, horrible creatures with claws and fangs. And he, he says to her, couldn't we just have pasta once in a while? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks for the call, Sue. Uh, Gary Larson, that, that was, he was a genius there and always enjoyed the far side. The and he cartoons. had a lot of prehistoric cartoons. Yeah. Too. So um, who is the Fossil Roadshow aimed at, George? Oh, all demographics, um, young and not as young alike. Um, the the kids really love to bring in their treasures that they find in their driveway. In fact, that's how I was first introduced to fossil collecting. Was uh, those kids that are lucky enough to have graveled driveways? A lot of uh, in most cases, that gravel is native to Mississippi. It's hauled from pits in western or northeastern Mississippi, and used to pave roads and driveways. And that's where I was introduced in one of my slideshows. Uh, there's a picture of a six-year-old George. Uh, <laughs> playing in the driveway with a cousin and a brother looking for fossils. Hmm. Um, so a lot of kids get introduced that way, and they'll be bringing some of those treasures. Uh, they'll be um, novice and expert alike, too. Um, we get a lot of people who have never heard of the show before and, and found something in their backyard or found something in their closet that was dug up many years ago, and they're rediscovering it, and they want that identified. The show last year... One of the employees of MDWFP brought her daughter in 
and uh, she had a wagon load of bones that she, like a red wagon, you know, mm-hmm. the flyer, radio flyers, full of bones that she found in the woods behind her house. It turned out not to be a fossil skeleton, but something much more recent, uh, a deer, we think. Oh, okay. <laughs> or as I remember, I think it was a deer. Um, but yeah, uh, just all walks of life. We've, we've, we get, uh, again, novice and expert um, anyone who's got something that they want somebody else to look at. So what about maybe interesting or surprising discoveries? You know, we talked to Libby was saying that sometimes people bring in exhibit a and they're disappointed that it's nothing, but then this, Oh, well, I have this other thing I got over here is something. (laughs) Any stories of, of unique or interesting discoveries? Yeah. And Libby's right about that. I can think of several instances where it was the backup fossil, (laughs) um, so to speak, uh, was there really the more interesting item? Yeah, and um, I always love it when it's the littlest kid that has oh, yeah. the coolest thing. Yeah, and and a lot of them come with stories. This has been in my family for a long time. Um, or uh, I just found this yesterday, and I think it's this. And, you know, we put them on the right road. And there's a lot of um, objects that come into the Fossil Road Show. People have ideas about what they might be because of their shape. And then we show them uh, – you know, things that are on display in the museum and, and try to correct some of those uh, misconceptions about shape. And some people sometimes are deceived by these shapes. Um, one year, someone thought they had a pterodactyl in one of their little rocks. It was no bigger than a couple of centimeters. Um, but, you know, we point out that pterodactyls don't get that small, maybe a fetal pterodactyl. Um, but, uh, yeah, we, we've, get, we've gotten some amazing things over the years. Uh, last year, we got a couple of donations uh, I think there was an Ice Age fossil. The year before last was really a bumper year when uh, young Allie Ammons uh, in the Delta brought in a, uh, a jaw of a rare giant ground sloth. And right behind her, waiting in line, was uh, Eddie Mooney of Natchez, Mississippi, who brought in the upper arm bone mm. of the same species of rare giant wow. ground sloth. <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was a big year. Um, uh, but, yeah, we've gotten some am- amazing things, and people learn a lot, I think. Like I say, people have the, – the novices uh, will have misconceptions about what things are, and they may never have been to the museum or seen a fossil before. So it's a big learning experience for those who have started collecting fossils for the first time, and we want to encourage that because Mississippi is just absolutely fossil-rich. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. We're visiting today with paleontologist George Phillips from the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science, uh, talking about the upcoming Fossil Roadshow. It's this Saturday, which would be March 3rd? 3rd, yes. 3rd. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are the times? Uh, 10 to 3.30. Okay. Well, and I will mention Steve Peterson, who is our bird buddy. Mm-hmm. He's going to be leading a bird trip in LaFleur's Bluff State Park. So you could go into Mays Lake. That's what we're going to do. And bird starting at 8 o'clock, bird for a couple of hours, and then walk over to the museum for All a right. fossil roadshow. That would be a full day there for sure. Yeah. And I understand uh, the weather is supposed to be quite nice I oh, think, yeah. this weekend. Yeah. So yeah, yeah that, that's good. Uh, we've got a call to get to, so we'll say good morning to Kathleen from Osaka. Go ahead, Kathleen. Good morning, guys. It's that time of year, so I'm calling again about the fireflies. Good, yes. Uh, I saw some last night for the first time. Uh-huh. Okay, because we've had all that rain, and they, I guess, didn't come out or something. But how long do they usually last? And my second question is, when they raise up in that kind of 
I call it a cloud, like over the ground with those lights. How long do they do that? One one time, or do they do that throughout the season? Okay, this is there's long explanations because we will have some kind of firefly starting, you know, about now, and they can go on through the summer, but it'll be different species that kind of right, take over. Right. right now, what you saw was probably right at dusk, probably, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, and sometimes they just almost bubble up out of the grass and go up a little ways and go back down, right, at the early stages of coming out. But, yeah, so you're probably seeing those now. The The synchronous ones that are in that layer about three feet from the ground, that you know, the yep. one that we've been talking about looking for because they're really rare. They usually come out a little before or right after Mother's Day. And okay. they they only live two weeks. So once mm-hmm. they come out, that's at the most, we think. And they will display just a few nights, each individual one. Right now they're little larvae, you know, in the leaf litter. So okay. once they start coming out, so and I think you saw those, didn't you, last year, Kathleen? I've seen them three. This would be the third year. Great. Would and you, I've seen the cloud that comes up three feet above the ground once. Mm-hmm. Because when you get over fifty, <clears throat> you, you can't wait up till midnight That's every night. Right, because people yeah, be the, talking about you. Yeah, wouldn't you but, know uh, it? The the best ones are late at night <laughs> and in the deep woods and. You know, if there's not mosquitoes, it's like, oh, we're not going to see them if we're not getting eaten up. But those are the coolest ones. It's worth it all. Yeah, I'd have to take a nap and my vitamins. <laughs> would you, <laughs> Kef, yeah. <laughs> would you write down when you see your first of the synchronous That's why ones? I, was I just saw them yeah. last night. Okay, but what? So yes, that would be on the last of the month. So these so are I'm the f- kind of keep an eye on. Yeah, these are the first of the of the. Um, gosh, I can't even remember the common name of those guys. But anyway, the the. This is the early ones, and then the synchronous ones should start in May, about the middle of May. All right. So let us know if you see the synchronous ones, too. Thanks, Kathleen, for your call. Let's uh, take another quick break. We are on Creature Comforts this morning, visiting with paleontologist George Phillips from the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science, talking about the Fossil Roadshow coming up this Saturday, and also 40 years of paleontology at the museum. Dr. Major's here, ready for your pet question. Give us a call this morning at one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 Or you can email animals at mpbonline.org. We'll be back with more of the show after this. Welcome back. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science, and Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson. We're visiting today with paleontologist George Phillips from the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. We've been talking about the upcoming Fossil Roadshow. It's this uh, Saturday, March 3rd, beginning at 10 at the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science in Jackson. So, George, one of the things I guess that it's, that it's a, a kind of a bonus is that People, I think, can also look through the museum and the, what, what sort of fossil-related exhibits and things you, you currently have at the museum. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, currently, uh, we have a traveling exhibit that's not prehistoric-related, but we're very excited about it. It's a conservation exhibit. But we often have traveling exhibits that are related to paleontology. Um, the, the fossil wall was updated, uh, our main fossil display, in 2013, 2014, so particularly for those of you who have not been to the museum in a while, 
uh, you really need to take a gander at the things that we've populated the wall with in in the past few years. Uh, we have more uh, donated specimens on the fossil wall since I've been a uh, the curator. Um, we've had a lot of donations come through the door. For example, during Fossil Roadshow. And uh, that's really uh, nicely complemented um, the content of the wall with respect to who did all that. And I, I'm proud to say that uh, at least 50% of everything on that wall was collected by just Mississippians. That they're not collected by staff members. It's a testament to people coming together and, and sharing information. And, again, a lot of that happens at the Fossil Roadshow where we get donations of these important things. But yeah, so um, the picker's bone was put on display in that same year, 2014. I think it's March of this year or that year, so some four years ago. Um, that was the picker that was that was the bone <laughs> that was donated by the American pickers, and it's one of our finest specimens of a dinosaur from Mississippi. Um, recently, somebody donated another dinosaur fossil, but we're going to have to really think about how to put that on display because it's only a third of a centimeter across. Wow. (laughs) So it might be our first uh, tiny fossil that will be featured because it's from an early type of mammal called a multituberculate. These mammals became extinct some 40 million years ago. there. It's, it's a rather primitive mammal. They're, they probably filled a, a niche similar to the modern rodents. Um, they had weird-shaped teeth unlike any living mammals or any other mammals that had ever lived other than themselves, the multituberculates. Um, but it's the uh, first specimen from Columbus, Mississippi, and it's only one of six primitive mammal fossils that, it, uh, or that, it, that we own here at the museum that are on official record. And this one was donated by a collector who found it on a creek bed in 2003, in uh, Columbus, Mississippi, uh, it dates to the Cretaceous period, and uh, it may even be a new species, and we're very excited about it. This guy, when he presented it to me recently, said, I've been meaning to get this to you for 15 years. Oh, wow. <laughs> so how tiny are these? Is it teeth that he gave you? Uh, it's, it's a single molar, but it says a lot because of the particular tooth it says. So, so not every bone of small. Yeah. Uh, so about a third of a centimeter across, if that. It, it's. Uh, so how could he have seen? How did he know that? He found that uh, washing sediment. So we wash sediment. So he's that through. serious. He's a very serious. Yes, he is. Amateur. Uh, yeah. I collected him back in the day when we were both collectors. Oh. And uh, yeah, that was quite a discovery. So that would be maybe the size of a grain of rice. I mean, a chunk. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And about uh, three times as big around. It's a grain of rice. So you've got some serious people out there helping you find these little bitty things. Yes. hard work. Oh, yeah. Uh, There are quite a few collectors. Uh, Another guy who finds uh, small early mammal teeth is Andy Weller of Waynesboro, Mississippi. We've been working with him since 2014 and his discoveries. Uh, There's a paleontologist at the University of North Florida who's writing most of that up. But I guess part of the fun, I would imagine, from you is to hear the stories of how people find these things. Yeah. Uh, a, a lot of times it's just happenstance. Uh, they stumble across it. Of course, you're not going to just stumble across a, uh, a fossil that's just a couple of millimeters in, in <laughs> diameter. Um, but, uh, yeah, once people find something and they get hooked, uh, they start naturally graduating to the different levels uh, they start learning how to find the tiny things, or uh, they target certain time periods. Um, this show 
is always the best venue for people to learn from other collectors, not just paleontologists. Um, there will be a lot more collectors there than there will be paleontologists. And that's a lot of times how they learn. Now, once you told us about some mammal fossils from Meridian, mm-hmm. are these little mammals that he that they that are you're talking this, about now are they similar to these? Those. Yeah, these are older They're, than the Meridian ones. Uh huh. Yeah, the stuff from Columbus and the Columbus area. Uh, those are their oldest uh, mammals from the state of Mississippi. The ones that have been already published, and there were more numerous. Um, some 30 different species found in Meridian in the 1990s and in the early 2000s by the Carnegie Museum of Natural History. Um, we have casts of all that material. That material is in such high demand that uh, the original fossils, and which belong to the Carnegie, mm-hmm. and our casts are always out on loan. because they're being studied and they're from an area that has been little studied prior to, and and that area doesn't have a lot of fossils. So the folks from the Carnegie, they put a lot of time and effort and manpower in finding something very rare in a sort of a small space. Well, beneath the Walmart and Lowe's parking lot, they're in Meridian. um, And they were able to come up with 30 different species. It was an unprecedented addition to the fossil record. Because it used to be the red hot truck stop. Right. The old red hot truck stop. Again, over 30 species. And as a casual fossil collector, I used to pick things up there, but I now know I was walking on those really rare, <laughs> wonderful things. But the layer right? that they incur- occurred in was such a thin layer. I mean, it was it was less than a, a fraction of a foot thick. But you had to mm-hmm. dig for that. Huh? Oh, yeah, yeah. And it was the uh, construction of the, the plaza. Okay. Yeah. I only it. looked mm-hmm. for things that were laying on top, really. Yeah. Yeah. Most of us did. We found cool <laughs> things, yeah. On the Creature Conference this morning, we're visiting with paleontologist George Phillips from the Museum of Natural Science, uh, talking about the upcoming fossil roadshow this Saturday. If you'd like to join the conversation, we've got some open phone lines, so give us a call. The phone number is one eight seven seven. MPB Ring. It's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. You can email the show animals at mpbonline.org. Looks like we've got a pet question on the line. So we say good morning to Kristen from Jackson. Go ahead, Kristen. You're on the air. Hi. Um, I was listening earlier about uh, the conversation about the reaction that cats have to the, uh, the flea treatments. And um, I have always wondered if, um, the if the liquid causes them pain, like burns the skin, perhaps just because of the way they react, and they squint their eyes and and run away. And so I don't know if it's just an annoyance or if it actually hurts. I think it's an annoyance rather than hurting. Uh, some of the cats don't react to it at all. Others uh, run off and maybe do some flips or something like that. <laughs> but uh, uh, we could do some experiments with just uh, some different things and put there and see. Uh, however, uh, as far as any permanent damage, uh, I don't think there is, and I don't think it hurts. The uh, thing I was mentioning, if you get it out of place, a cat wants to remove stuff like this from its skin, mm-hmm. and they will literally lick the hair off uh, in some instances, not all, but in some instances because they don't want that on them. Uh, right. So cats are a little bit more sensitive about this than, say, a dog would be. Do you think it smells bad to them? I've wondered uh, that. It depends on the product and it depends on the cat probably too but uh, uh cats are unusual creatures and they <laughs> they uh, they know what we're doing before we do it a lot of times mm-hmm. you know the cat goes and hides when you uh, say let's go to the vet or yeah. uh it's time for your medication and uh, a lot of cats probably get 
one or two doses of medication that's meant for a week, and then you can't find the cat or they spit it out. So <laughs> there's there's all kind of uh, issues with cats. All right, yeah. uh, Kristen, thanks for your call today. Uh, you know, in my case, it almost seems like I think it's the the fact that he doesn't, my cat, I don't think, likes his fur getting wet. I think part of it is that. And plus, it's I've got that little... It's the plastic thing, so the squeezing, and so I think it's maybe the sensation of the, you know, the the medicine being squeezed onto his fur, and the fact, like I say, I I, I think cats prefer uh, to wet themselves when they're bathing, of course, but they don't mm-hmm. like to get wet when it's not on their schedule. Some of the topical uh, flea uh, products for cats have an alcohol base; others have an oil base, and in my opinion, I think the oil base is a little bit more irritating to the cat than the alcohol base. Okay. So, George, earlier you mentioned that Mississippi is a fossil-rich state, uh, and I guess we talked a little bit about are there sort of hotbeds in the state where uh, we mentioned Meridian, the Columbus area. What are some other areas where, or is it all over Mississippi? Yeah, there, there are certainly areas where there, that are more fossil-rich than others. Um, the Black Belt, the Golden Triangle, is very rich with fossils. Uh, the Tupelo area, New Albany. There's this um, feature in northeast Mississippi called the Pontotoc Ridge. I do a lot of research up there. Uh, the town's located along the ridge, uh, moving north to south. Uh, Ripley, New Albany, uh, Houston, Pontotoc, Houston, and even Starkville, there on the southernmost tip of the ridge, uh, particularly fossil-rich area. And that ridge is formed from fossil-rich sandstones and limestones. But yes, the Jackson Metro area, uh, anytime there's uh, urbanization, which including a lot of digging and construction, highway building, that's going to turn up a lot of fossils. And it just so happens that Jackson's located on a promontory called the Jackson Dome that has pushed up a lot of fossil-rich <laughs> beds. And of course, the urban activity has exposed a lot of those beds. Um, uh, other rich areas, we mentioned Meridian, um, there are areas in the state that have um, suffered in the sense that I have not gotten to them, and, and I apologize to the public about that. We have uh, lots of beds with fossil that are fossil-rich with plants. Uh, they're harder to find and track, and, and they weather uh, easily. That is, they break apart uh, those beds relatively easy. Um, and so we, we are working with paleobotanists, those people that study plants, to collect our fossil plant sites more often and, and get them researched. Uh, Brian Axsmith at the University of South Alabama is studying a lot of our fossil plants right now. Something what around Hattiesburg, a, a yes. bunch of fossil plants were found yes. recently. Uh-huh. Too, they sure yeah. were. Yeah, that that is uh, that's on his docket right now. He's trying to write okay. that up. But we've got fossil plants uh, in Benton County, Grenada County. A lot of these were studied prior to the, um, uh, the Museum of Mississippi Museum of Natural Science paleontology program coming into existence. The University of Florida uh, paleontologists have published a couple of things on Mississippi plants, as to, as did a Dr. Uh, Edmund Berry back in the 1930s with the U.S. Geological Survey. We need to take one final break this hour. When we get back, we'll continue talking with our guest, George Phillips, and we've got a couple of phone calls as well. So, Diane, Gloria, hang on. We'll get to your phone calls right after this last break. You're listening to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. 
Welcome back to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell with Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science, and Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson. We've been visiting today with paleontologist George Phillips from the Museum of Natural Science, talking about the upcoming Fossil Roadshow this Saturday, March 3rd, beginning at 10 at the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science in Jackson. In just a minute, we want to talk about the 40th anniversary of the paleontology program at the museum, but we do have a couple of pet questions on the line. So let's start in Hattiesburg. Diane's on the line. Good morning, Diane. Go ahead. Good morning. I'm calling about an indoor cat who's about 10 months old, and she's a biter, not just nipping, but sinking her teeth into my skin. It seems to be when she's angry or irritated, and I'm wondering if this is her personality or do I have any hope for change? Okay, is this a... uh... What's the history on this cat as far as? Well, I got her when she was um, four or five months old. She had been outdoor and abandoned. Okay. She's very affectionate, can be, you know, wants to be right up by you, sit in your lap. But if I, for example, put her aside because I need to get up, she may just really bite me. We see a lot of this type of aggression or biting in cats that have been raised as orphans. And, of course, we don't Uh know the history then simply because she was outside. Uh, But we do see more of this uh, where people, you know, really will take a kitten in and bottle feed it. It's the only kitten there. And they they never learn the ins and outs of uh, give and take. When they bite, they might get bitten back by their sibling. Uh Uh, I would suggest uh, trying to pinpoint the times that she bites. Avoid those situations if you can. Uh, you may want to try a squirt bottle. You may have already done that with water. I have, yeah. With, with water. Uh, does she hide and then come out and attack you? or? No, no. She mm-hmm. just, you know, if she, um, she yeah. she's pretty pretty forward with it. She doesn't ever hide. Right. Well, uh, maybe she, or not- will, she will jump on my legs, but right. the main thing she's getting is my arm. Right. I'm just Right. This, this may be her nature, and it's going to be difficult, in my opinion, to change that. Uh, just work at trying to give her plenty to do uh, in the environment. Uh, do you have another cat? No, I don't. You might want to get another cat. That might help. I'm just suggesting that. Of course, you could have two problems then. <laughs> but uh, but uh, certainly it might help give her uh, a an outlet rather than you. Okay? All right, Diane. Okay, thank thanks, you. Thanks for your call. Uh, I would say, too, that, you know, if you pay close enough attention, you can see, or at least in my cat, you can see where he's getting a little bit irritated. You know, right. some certain signs that cats do, the the kind of the breathing out, huffing, I call it, and, you know, ears and that kind of thing. So, right. you, you know. It's a that, good sign that you might need to back off. Right, exactly. So that's not maybe correcting the pro, the problem, but it is realizing when that is coming, uh, and you might save you from a couple of scratches on your arm. Right. We've got another caller on the line. It's Gloria in Greenville. You're on the air, Gloria. Go ahead. Good morning. morning. I have a dog. It's a blue healer. And every morning when I get up and I get ready for work and I get ready to leave, my husband's retired. He's at home. I reach over to kiss him. My blue healer dog starts growling and nips me on the back of my heel. (laughs) Now, we've just about beat her off, you know, to make her stop doing that. But she still growls and she hurts me like I'm a cow. Okay. Kill well, me now. Okay. <laughs> I've got I don't know what to do. I've got a red healer at the clinic that you might want to come to get. No. And these these dogs, 
these dogs are hyper. Uh, they they are herders, as as the name would indicate, and they nip. Uh, this I is mean, I've always loved Blue Heelers. Don't right. get me wrong. That's all I've right. ever had. Well, they're excellent dogs. They're excellent pets, but they do need a lot to do. And when she's doing this, when you bend over to kiss your husband when goodbye. When I bend over to kiss my husband, okay. now not in the afternoons when right. I come home. Right. In the midday when I come home. Right. No, just in the mornings when I get ready to leave. Well, maybe we need a different time to kiss him. But uh, <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know what to tell you other than she's being a little protective. Oh, and, God. And, uh, she loves him. Right. It's like so. I'm living with another woman. <laughs> <laughs> well, Where? again, try, oh. to cha- try to change the uh, habits up a little bit. Maybe this well, can this help. What model thing? When you said that to that other lady, I hadn't tried that yet. Well, it does help in some cases just water and a heavy-duty squirt bottle. Okay. And, and try that and see. Okay. All right. Thanks. Good luck to you. Thanks, Gloria, for your call. So, uh, George, uh, this is the 40th anniversary of the paleontology program at the museum. Is that correct? It is. Um, 40th anniversary of an organized program. Although, uh, while she's been doing the Fanny Cook circuit with Kathy Shropshire, mm-hmm. Libby informed me that there was some paleontology going on back in Fanny Cook's day in the 1930s. Well, she she certainly took specimens back, even in the 20s, back to the Smithsonian with her. Fossil whales. We know that she took to Kellogg. Is that not incredible? I I did confirm that, that that specimen that's mentioned in the letters Uh of correspondence within the director of the Smithsonian, (laughs) um, that specimen was donated to the Smithsonian. I confirmed that recently. So, yeah, even Fanny Cook was doing paleo back then. I think the staff Mm -hmm. have, uh, some of the staff, and then you in particular, of course, when you came along, it's always always had an interest in fossils because they're rather prevalent in many parts of Mississippi. Yeah. But yes, the, this is the 40th year of an organized program. I'm the third curator. That makes and, me feel old. I remember when Mike was hired. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and if it hadn't been for um, people like uh, Libby and um, the the Mississippi Gem and Mineral Society and the interested interested public, and then our first curator. Um, you know, getting the ball rolling, getting Ziggy mounted. And I guess a lot of the foundation of the program uh, was kind of centered around getting Ziggy mounted, mm-hmm. wasn't it, Libby? Yeah, that's true. Uh, the Pitts family, Sue Pitts that's right. and yeah. her husband Leslie, mm-hmm. had, had, they were very serious amateur collectors. Mm-hmm. He was an, an architect. And when they found that Zygoriza, and he was smart enough to know exactly what it was and how mm-hmm. he should get it out. Mm-hmm. And then after he passed away, very tragically, gosh. So Sue donated that to the museum, and that was kind of the impetus to, yeah. we've got to get something going here. And we've been going strong ever since, yeah. several fossil whales later. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, uh, let's see if we can work this last phone call in. It goes to John in South Haven. Go ahead, John. Hi there. I, um, I have a long-haired calico cat. That is the strangest cat I have ever encountered. She is not affectionate in particular. I sit in a a lift chair sometimes, and she'll hop up on the arm of the chair and want me to pet her. Um, But if I'm sitting anywhere else, she wants me to pet her with a stick. She doesn't want me to touch her with my hand. Um, any comment? Is this just calico? 
You know, a lot of vets would agree with you. A lot of people that handle cats, that the calico cats are have have some unusual habits. Uh, I used to think that they were uh, more fractious than other cats, and I think I probably was wrong because all cats can be. But uh, she just wants you to do that particular thing. You might try one of these toys uh, on a little uh, fishing pole type thing and see if you can entertain her with that. But you could also well, I can, yeah, you, I'll play with her. That you, way. You, you could also but, rub her with that stick. Is what I was getting at. She, if she, won't, sit, she won't sit in anybody's lap. Okay. Well, she's that's that's being a cat. And I would say uh, you do have an unusual cat. I bet she's beautiful. You take care, and we appreciate your call. All right. Thanks, John. Uh, That's going to wrap us up for today. A reminder, Libby will be on Marshall Ramsey's show Monday talking about Fanny Cook. Thank you. I'd almost forgotten that. (laughs) Yes, I will. Uh, Creature Comforts is a production. Kathy Shropshire. Okay. Who is is Fanny Cook? Yes. The the embodiment of Fanny Cook. Yes. Creature Comforts is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio, funding provided in part by Wildlife Mississippi, a statewide organization celebrating more than 20 years of conserving Mississippi's lands, waters, and wildlife, and contributions from listeners like you. Our show is produced by Java Chapman, and our call screener was Michelle McAdoo. So for Libby Harfield, Dr. Troy Major, and our guest George Phillips, I'm Kevin Farrell. Stay tuned up next at 10. It's MPB's Season Pass with Jay White. We'll be back next Thursday at 9 for another Creature Comforts that's heard only on MPB Think Radio.